Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali hosting the show. And today uh, it's, a, it's a huge honor to bring one of the uh, fiercest young fast bowlers of his time. As a fan, I watched him come to India uh, in 1983, which was my first, uh, any, uh, my first memory of any sort of cricket after India had won the World Cup. And, and he was synonymous for a world record that he held for eight years. And as I was preparing for this podcast, uh, I told one of my friends that I'm having this guest. And the first answer was, oh, you mean seven for 51? So yes, it's Winston Davis, the man who had the best bowling ODI figures in the world for almost eight years till Akib Javed broke that record. So on that note, let me bring in my guest and uh, say hello to everyone here. Uh, how are you, Mr. Davis? Yes, good afternoon to everyone. Yeah, I'm fine, Sadiq. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people will enjoy this because uh, the audience here is nostalgia-driven and uh, your name was synonymous with a, with a record that stood at a uh, test of time for eight years. So let me just get right into the 7 for 51. I mean, you were introduced in the World Cup in a heading leg game against, I think, Australia. And Marshall and Garner were not part of the game. So that's what the legend we know. And yes. then uh, I want to hear from you, what, is, what do you still remember about that game? And how did you scalp those seven Aussie wickets? Well, my memory of that game, you know, in those days we had a team meeting the night before the game. And the 11 for the game was announced. And I was not part of the 11. So fortunately for me, I didn't go out that evening and eat too much curry and rice. <laughs> because it, the next morning, when we turned up to the ground, and we were practicing about half an hour before the game started, I got a touch on my shoulder and it was Clive Lloyd, our captain and he said to me Devo, you are in meaning I was in the 11 and I said, why? and he said, Malcolm Marshall wasn't too well overnight so I was taking his place and that's how that journey began and I remember my first five overs, I was hammered to all quarters of the head in the field. And Clive Lloyd was wondering whether to, I had bowled five overs, no maidens, 31 runs. And the Australians were dominated. Myself and Wayne Daniel. And I think the captain decided to give me one more over. And from there, I came into my own. And the next five overs, I took five for 21. So I redeemed, seven for 21. So I redeemed myself somewhat. And the West Indies went on to win that game. Wow. Uh, again, uh... Everybody I'm sure you've spoken to in that era you played in with Lloyd and then a little bit of Richard's captaincy, West Indies fast bowling, there was no shortage. And people even say, if you were part of some other other country, you would probably had a longer career because you were competing with the likes of when you made your debut, you know, uh, the Daniels, the Marshalls, Garner, Holding, Roberts, and then certain Courtney Walsh and a little later on Patrick Patterson, Ian Bishop, 
Anthony Gray, and uh, the line goes on and on. Gertley Ambrose, of course. So just go back to that mindset of a young Davis playing for the West Indies. Of course, every, every cricketer is very nervous when they make their ODI or test debut. But how hard was it to function in a pace battery that was so, so distinguished? Was it at the back of your mind? Okay, this could be my only few chances if I don't... Uh, well, did that kind of thought cross your mind? Or that's for us fans to think like that. When you are in there, you're not thinking like that. So share, share those views if you had any. Okay, well, no, you don't think like that because, um, you know, growing up in the West Indies and playing cricket, the West Indies were primarily a two-sport, if you want to say a nation. In the wet season, we play football, and in the hot season, we play cricket. And I gravitated to cricket, and my dream was to play for the West Indies. It was difficult for someone coming from what we call the smaller islands, like St. Vincent, the Grenadines, St. Lucia, Grenada, and the Commonwealth of Dominica. But so you had to fight somewhat harder to make the team. But once you got into the team, you got in on merit and you were able to compete with the guys from what we call the bigger islands. I made my debut in 19... 83 in Antigua against India and it was a tough baptism because they I'm trying to remember that growing in Antigua um, right in the city there and it wasn't known to help fast bowlers so it was hard work to make my debut but I, I did reasonably well which enabled me to maintain my t- place in the team. And competition was, was stiff. But if you, know, if you perform well, you expect it to be treated fairly. And for the most part, we were. And I enjoyed playing with the Marshalls and the Croft and Garners. I mean, cricket in the West Indies was very fierce. When we had the Shell Shield, um, coming up against Barbados in Barbados with Marshall, Garner, Clark, and Daniel. When, when teams went to Barbados, the match was over in two days. And my, one of the highlights of my career was when the Windward Islands defeated Barbados at the Kensington Oval with their top team in place. And that was one of the highlights because it's no easy feat to go to Barbados and beat them at the Kensington Oval when they have their battery of fast bowlers, Desmond Haynes and Gordon Greenwich and the likes. And yeah. we won up them and I still remember that with fond memories. Yeah, that's uh, quite the cricketing history Barbados has. And uh, again, my next question is also generic, but I can, I mean, I want to know, I'm sure it's a unique answer for each individual. So you were growing up in the era you just mentioned with the likes of Marshalls and uh, those guys. And this came back at the heels of Clive Lloyd's pursuit for pace. The story is legendary how 
Australia beat West Indies 5-1 in 71-75 and then Lloyd comes back and starts looking for his own pace battery. So you were a teenager then, I mean, born in 1958. So was that series instrumental or was, I mean, were, were those times instrumental uh, for you to become, you know, part of the historic pace battery that West Indies had? And uh, what was the culture like for growing up as a young kid? And, you know, every, was, did everybody want to bowl fast all of a sudden? Yes. In, in the West Indies, people, spin bowling was seen as something to hit out of the park. People took great pleasure in seeing the ball flying around the batsman's head, people ducking and weaving and trying to get out of the way. And that really was the motivation. You, if you didn't bowl fast, you didn't really have a chance to succeed. You had to be a very special spin bowler to get into the West Indies team. Because with a battery of four fast bowlers, we were likely to bowl out any team most times on any kind of wicket. So there wasn't really a place for spinners. If you know if you remember people like Viv Richards and Larry Gomes used to just give the fast bowlers a breather just to hold up one end so the fast bowlers can take a breather and then before the captain let us lose again. So the, in, in the era that I grew up, pace was key. Yes, indeed. And uh, again, long time back now, but what is, in your view, the mindset of a fast bowler? I mean, was it all about going out, intimidate batsmen, because that's what fast bowling is always with skill and pace? And uh, it's always the speed of the ball that, you know, that has sometime in the past and even now has shaken confidence of many, you know, you know batters across. Uh, so what was the psyche of a fast bowler? I mean, and what was your mantra? How did you operate? Well, to be honest, the main thing, you want to get the batsman out and you would use whatever skill and ability you have at your disposal. And one of the main weapons of a fast bowler is the short pitch ball. A well-directed bouncer does shake up even the most well-set batsman. And the main aim is to unsettle him. It's not necessarily to hit him. Sometimes the batsman would make a mistake and get himself in the wrong position and he would get hit. It's not that the fast bowler sets out to hit him, but the ball is in that area, and if you hit, if you play a shot and you miss, you miss, I hit him. But the main thing is to intimidate. Fast bowling is intimidating. There's, you know, there's no way you can describe it any other how. Genuinely fast bowling at 1995 miles an hour, an hour is no, is, you know, is no, not much fun, and yet. I'm always fond of saying to batsmen, it doesn't really matter how fast someone can bowl. A good batsman can always be in position waiting for the ball to arrive. The problem for the batsman is what to do with the ball when it's when it's up, you know, when it's close to him. It's not that he. You can always be waiting for the ball, however fast someone is bowling. 
Sure. Again, uh, my next question is, again, out of curiosity, and I'm sure a lot of fans uh, have thought this. This may not be an original question, but, you know, I'll put it out there. So, again, with fastballing comes intimidation, and, you know, back in the day, they were not helmets and not, you know, uh, good uh, or world-class, you know, guarding system like an app guard. And, you know, you, you have images of batsmen getting bruised. So, in your memory if you hit a batsman or you're, you were part of a bowling unit that hit a batsman, of course, not intention to hit him, but did fast bowlers soften up once you see blood or you hit someone? Did that change anything? Or, you know, okay, once you're out there, it's part of the game. It's not personal. You're not trying to hit someone. I mean, it's kind of a, I'm, I'm kind of coming from different angles, but what is a fast bowler's mindset once you see someone get hit? Do you change your style after that? Well, there's a couple of things. If the batsman is dug in and is resisting. And if, you know, some batsmen can get up, I don't know, for want of a better word, they can get up your nose. They can become irritating. You can get, um, you really want to get them out. And if they suffer a blow while batting, yeah, you, your humanity kicks in and you feel sorry for them but your your job to get them out is you know take precedent over that and as long as they remain at the crease they are fair game and i was reading uh, the mike brearley book and i had him on the show a few weeks ago and uh he said you know between him and the australian captain sometime before the start of the series they would be a pact that you would not bowl bouncers to the tail, especially to bowlers who really didn't have the skill with the bat. So was that a team decision even for West Indies? Did, did you come across those decisions where Lloyd had just said, okay, we won't be bowling short? Or the other part is fast bowlers don't like to be bowled short because then you can go and unleash something in return. Sadiq, I think that was wishful thinking. Um, I often heard him talk about a fast bowl, the fast bowlers union. I I never um, was privileged to that at all. I think whoever is at the crease, you you want to remove them, and every player has a responsibility to adequately equip themselves at the crease at the crease. So while they have lesser ability. They can be. They can make the difference between winning and losing a match. So you can't afford to um, be too easy on the tail ender, so to speak. You got to go in as hard as you can because you're looking to win a match. No, no. I, I mean, of course, you have to get the tail ender out because you know what can happen if someone sticks around. I'm saying when teams don't want to bowl the short stuff to the tailenders because then we've seen in the past, Patrick Patterson got mad by the Aussies and he came back and just unleashed some, some hell on them in Melbourne, I think in 92 or, you know, some, some of those old tours. And we've seen that a lot. So that's where the question was coming from. You definitely can get skill and out the tailender, but you don't have to, uh, you know, out menace them or by, you know, throwing short stuff or chin music. I think you, what, what you are trying to do is to push them back. If you're looking to get on the front foot, you 
most fast bowlers I know do not like tail enders pushing out on the front foot. It, it's, for want of a better word, it's a sign of disrespect. <laughs> so we would try and push them back, get them back in the crease, and then try and follow it up with a fast Yorkshire, Yorker. So there are different strategies to remove tail end batsmen, but the goal is to get them out first and foremost. And if they're sticking around, then you may have to revert to form. And if they're going to stick around and give trouble, you have to remove them using all legitimate means of bowling. Okay. No, f- fair enough. I mean, I wouldn't call you like a tail ender because you have a test score highest of 77. But when you were batting, did you mind the short stuff if the opposition is challenging you? No, I liked it. Okay. To be honest, to be honest <laughs> growing up in the West, because if, if you watch me bat, I, I don't go forward. Right. I'm always hanging back on the back foot when fast, medium or fast bowlers are bowling because I need to give myself enough time to deal with the fast, short pitch ball. And growing up in the West Indies, we had a diet of fast, short pitch bowling to anybody who, who pick, picked up a bat in their hands. So I, I was used to it. I don't say I liked it, but I was used to it and I was prepared to deal with it. Absolutely. So again, a very nostalgia uh, question which today's generation sometimes doesn't fully appreciate. Do you think helmets change the game when you're bowling at some of these world-class batsmen back in your day? Uh, do you think overall the you know introduction of helmet has leveled the field, uh, playing field somewhat from the batsman's point of view? I think it's a good in, introduction to cricket because you really don't want to see anybody get seriously hurt on a cricket field. It's after all you know, it's a game of cricket. So any protective gear that helps protect the health of the batsman, the fielder, anyone, it's, it's a good thing. I have no problems with that. I don't think it's unduly favor the batsman. Um, it may be, in some areas, it could be false security. But I don't think it's unduly favor the batsman. I think um, the, the main thing in cricket is, is the state of the pitch. The more benign a cricket pitch is, is the more that favors the batsman. Okay, so let's stick with a couple more questions for your career. Then I have a whole lot of questions on India, the India series and the World Cup. Okay. So, uh, do you look back with any ounce of regret that you should have played more for the West Indies? And secondly, when you were not in the mix, how communicative was the West Indies board with you that, okay, you are still in the mix. We are following your progress in the county cricket. If you do well, you will be back for a test call. So uh, elaborate on those two things. Sadiq, I enjoy every moment representing the West Indies cricket team. It was a great honor. It was a great era to be playing cricket and especially to play to be playing for the West Indies. We were dominant, dominating world cricket. And I I am fond of saying to my um, fellow West Indians, the West Indies cricket team 
where the West Indies may never be a military, military power or one of the great economic powers in the world, we were dominant in cricket. We were a world power. Wherever we went, we were respected for our cricketing ability. And that is something that would stay with me forever. Would I have liked to play for the West Indies more? Of course. But I do not begrudge the time I spent playing for the West Indies. It was enjoyable. And even today, it is still something that people still remember me by. So I can't complain about that. What was the second question? The second question was the communication from the West Indies Cricket Board. Uh, were you kept in touch? Okay, we are following your progress. If you do good for the county team, you will still be back in the test reckoning. How are those things treated? Uh, were you, were you involved in you know, what your future would be, at least some sort of communication coming from the board? Unfortunately, the West Indies Cricket Board in that period of time, I don't know what it is like now, were not very communicative with the players. They were always, you know, some players were disgruntled with the way they were treated. Um, look, we, coming from a diverse group of islands and different ways of doing things, there were always challenges, Sadiq. I wouldn't say our board is the most communicative um, organization vis-a-vis -vis the players. But, you know, we, we got on. My biggest beef with the board is that after dominating world cricket for so long, West Indies cricket is still in the doldrums. That's my dis, dissatisfaction and disappointment that our board is not one of the richest board financially and that our cricket is not in, not in a more healthier place. But apart from that, I think you do what you got to do at the time. Yeah, that's a very, I mean, touchy topic. I mean, everybody who has followed the West Indies cricket all over the world have seen uh, the decline in terms of, you know, the quality your generation had. And um, you think, uh, again, there are a lot of loose end stories to this. A lot of people believe uh, the rise of the NBA also had a lot of impact. A lot of young West Indian, the youth were driven towards uh, the glamour and the charm of the American life via the NBA. And cricket became uh, a not-so-desired uh, sporting career. Uh, any, any truth to that? Have you heard those? And what are your views on that? As far as I'm, I am aware, that's not true. What I would challenge people who, are, who thinks like that, I would like them to give me 10 West Indian who have made it big in the NBA uh, out of 5 million who have left the Caribbean and gone to play, you know, in the American leagues. I, to me, the... the Decline of West Indies cricket began with the decline of attitudes. I, I believe that disrespect for your elders, 
disrespect for authority and the projection of self has led to, in some part, to the demise of our cricket. We, when I was playing cricket, playing for the West Indies was it. Nowadays, there seem to be other considerations in the mix. Are you close to the sport in any way today? Where are you? How involved are you? Do you follow the health of the game, especially the West Indies cricket? Or I do. I watch cricket. I wherever possible, I attend at the cricket grounds here in the UK. So yeah, I'm still very much a keen cricket. Um, today the IPL is on, and yesterday my team won. So <laughs> the team that I backed in the IPL. So, so yes, um. I'm still keen. I mean, as opposed to say once a cricket, they're always a cricket. Sure. All right. So now, again, as you uh, mentioned before we started recording, a uh, chunk of the remaining conversation will focus with your uh, battles or your uh, rivalry with the Indian team back in the day because my listenership is predominantly Indian here. And uh, I also got into the game <clears throat> on the backdrop of India's World Cup when I didn't see that. I was a young boy and then I saw... You know, you, you know, you guys come in and just, you know, and the rest is history. So uh, let's go back to the World Cup final. Again, there are a lot of stories that, you know, Indians have read or talked about, or there's a lot of maybe uh, uh, nostalgia that gets in the way what facts were, we never know. But what was the mindset of the West Indies team when you lost that World Cup final to India? You were part of the mix. You didn't play the, in the final 11, but you were in that squad. So... How much of a shock was that loss for Lloyd and team going for a third world championship? What are your recollections? It was a bitter blow. It was a big blow to the West Indian psyche because we were expected to win that match. We had restricted India to about 166, I think, or something around there. Yeah. And we were expected to cruise and have the, the third win in, in succession. And the loss really um, dented our pride and our psyche. The mindset, I, to be honest, I, I was in the dressing room. And I can't tell you what, I think one or two bad decisions were made, if I remember right, I think there might have been, I, 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 I can't, re- I seem to think the batting order may have been adjusted. I, I wouldn't go out on a limb like that. Um, but I think, but whether that had any significant part to play in our defeat, I, I, don't, I don't know. But we were confident that we can, having restricted India to such a low total, we can easily overtake that. And it wasn't to be. And, and it, it hurt. You know, I saw big men cried in the dressing mm-hmm. room because it was hurting. But we got over it, as you say, later that year when we told India and redeemed ourselves somewhat. But I don't think anything can erase India's success on that day. Yeah. Um, it, it was a very good performance. 
India stuck to their guns. Even though it was a low total, India came out fighting. They did not give up. And I think that, that was the right attitude. They put us under all the pressure by removing our opening batsmen. And from there on, it was a struggle. And India romped on them. And, you know, three chairs to them. They, they, they outplayed us on that day. And, you know, cricket is like that. You yeah. cannot, you can, if you play test cricket, one team can dominate for four days. And on the last day, they lost the test match. And basically, is who put the best foot forward on the day wins the match. No, absolutely. And that change. World cricket, because we all know how India's role in the modernization of game uh, has been. You know, India's sitting at the financial center of cricket. And that uh, one event in Lords, when India defended 183 against the mighty West Indies, have changed it all. So going back to the tour that uh, followed that, uh, was it again, sport is about leveling score, but was it business as usual for Lloyd and men? Or was it a little personal? Okay, let's <laughs> let's get back to where we were and, you know, uh, what followed there? Uh, just talk about that series. Well, we we came to India for three months. We were away for three months. We spent Christmas in India. We really came over to India to play good cricket. We we expected a tough series on the back of the World Cup, and even though the margin, even though we won that series. There were times when India had us under pressure and perhaps could have taken one or two test matches. But I think sometimes I don't like the word luck. So, but I, I would use it in this case because a better word escaped me. Luck was on our side or we were fortunate on several occasions to just um, come past India. But I remember Dilip Vensaka, he got 100 against us in Calcutta. And other very credible performances, even though we won, we didn't have it all, all our way on that tour. It, it was a tough tour, but it was very enjoyable. Okay. Absolutely. And my, my first cricketing hero, like many Indians of that era, was Sunil Gavaskar. And he had a pretty good record against the West Indies. And we all know West Indies was the standard of the game. If you have to score against a team, it has to be West Indies to, to be judged a, a all-time great. So what was uh, uh, your recollection of bowling to him? We all know how good he was, but I want to hear from you, know, you in the West Indies dressing room, what kind of respect he enjoyed uh, from the West Indians and how did you and your peers uh, saw the challenge of dismissing him? A couple of things. Well, of course, Sonny. Sonny, I mean, no, I don't think anybody can doubt his cricket batting ability. He was easily one of the best batsmen to grace this earth. And on, on let's say, on balanced pitch, pitches, you got an even chance of getting sunny out. On docile pitches, it become more difficult. On very bouncy pitches, it was easier to get him out. But I think that is true of most batsmen. 
we are the saying in the West Indies team. When you bowl to Sonil Gavis uh, and you see him get down on one knee and drive you through the covers, it's a sign of things to come. <laughs> you know you're in for hard days work. And that was true on many occasions. And we don't hear much about the trash talking, which we sometimes uh, have heard in the recent years, especially not even recent. I think it's more like team specific. We've already heard some sort of a banter with the Australian team. So was there any banter going on when you guys were bowling at Sunny or Mohinder Amanath or Dilip Bangsarkar? What kind of uh, infield atmosphere there was when you were trying to get those guys out? To be honest, Sadiq Westinese with four fast bowlers, we didn't really need to talk <laughs> We, for the most part, we would glare. That's the batsman. That's that's the most thing we would we would stand halfway down the pitch, probably with our hands on our hip, and glare at the batsman. We didn't need to use words. We used the ball. Sure. And you played that full test series, I believe, in India. How are those conditions? How were those conditions back then for a fast bowler to utilize, you know, the best out of a game compared to what you had back home? Surprisingly, the conditions were good. They were similar to what I were used to in the West Indies. You know, the West Indies went from India. We went on to Australia, and when I was in before we left, the guys them said to me. In there, the pitches are slow, and it can be tough work. But if you're in the team to go to Australia, you're going to like the Australian pitches. But you know, I bowled so quickly in India that one time, Kapil Dev, the Indian captain, challenged me. He, he, he almost suggested... Almost, I'm using that word as best, advisedly, that I chopped. (laughs) 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 Because, you know, in cricket terms, because I was not a very bulkily built man, a lot of people were surprised at the amount of pace I was able to generate. And sometimes looking for answers, they look at your action. Hmm. And he, he didn't come right out and say that, but yeah, I think on many occasions uh, they were surprised. Yeah, I'm sure. It's, uh, you know, things like that when the surface, it's, uh, it, uh, it catches the bowler by surprise. So, so, so you brought Kapil Dev up. And in that series, in the Ahmedabad test, he had uh, an amazing match where he took nine wickets in the second innings. So how did you guys see him as an opponent and how impressive was that feat to get nine wickets on those Indian pitches against the mighty West Indies? He was a great competitor. West Indies have always had... You know, I grew up listening to West Indies play against India on the radio when they had Bashan Singh Bedi, then Kataragavan, um, Pasana. I mean... They used to weave their web around the West Indian batsmen. And then, because India was known for the spin bowling prowess. And then when we went to India, India 
I think that era is where India start developing their fast bowling talent, where people realize, yeah, we can we can produce fast bowlers, credible fast bowlers, and yeah, he was one of the best. Yeah, he, he was a flag bearer before that. I think it was sometimes the legend says Gavaskar has opened the bowling just to get the shine of the ball and India will bring the spin quartet. But yeah, the Kapil Dev, I think, factor has been, you know, well known in Indian cricket annals. And now, you know, we have a very good fast bowling attack. It took three decades to get here, but we have an attack now. Yes, so, India now is producing fast bowlers. Um, and there's no reason why, I mean... It, fast bowling is a mindset. It's hard work, but it's something you, you have to like. I enjoy bowling fast. There, there, wasn't, there wasn't a day I woke up and think, oh, no. I, I enjoyed it. And if you enjoy it, it's, it's, even though it's hard work, it's, it's pleasing to you. You don't, you don't see it as something to avoid. Yeah. It's, it's like a boxer. Once you're in the ring, you're in, you, know, you want to throw some punches. No, absolutely. And going back to what you earlier said about how good a spinner has to be, that then you have to think Carl Hooper and Roger Harper must be really, really good spinners that they got into the West Indies playing 11s. I don't think Carl Hooper didn't get in the team for his spin bowling. He was, Batting all-rounder. <laughs> yeah, he was made more like a, a stopgap. Sort of spin bowling. Roger Harper got into the team as an all-rounder. I know a batting all-rounder, but one with competent skill as an off-spinner. But like I said, um, in the with, we still always had four fast bowlers. So these guys, even when Roger played in the team, unless the wicket favoured spin a lot, the West Indies still rely heavily on the fast bowling team, talent. So, but yeah, um, I think it was good for those guys to get into the team because they had great, good success in West Indies domestic cricket. And I think by right, they own their place. Sure. So one more question in India, then we move to some generic stuff. So that 83 tour when you went there and India had just won the World Cup, what was the coverage like? Uh, I mean, you were there for three months. Uh, how popular was the sport and how much were fans eager to see you guys practice? What do you recall of that tour when you were moving from city to city in India? Just share with the listeners here. You know, I always, I still, I don't know if I can say this right, but when we get on the bus, we always had a good time when the driver would say, Jaldi, Jaldi, Chilo, Chilo. <laughs> yeah, Jaldi, Jaldi, Chalo, Chalo means let's go fast, hurry up. <laughs> and weaving through the streets of those cities sometimes was quite precarious, but we, we survived that that bit. And yeah, we, we had great fan base in India. You couldn't come out the front door of your hotel without, you know, the minute you come out, there would be very few people outside, but if you remain outside for any length of time, I mean, it became, you, be, you were surrounded by fans wanting the autograph and and that sort of stuff. The, the West Indies team, as far as I'm aware, remain very popular and have a great fan base in India. Sure. 
And you also had a very successful stint with county cricket, which was seen as a standard of the game, you know, for international players getting picked up by counties and everybody's trying to hone their skills. So using county and international cricket, who's the toughest batsman or maybe bunch of batsmen who you've bowled to just for the listenership here? So we know uh, what are your thoughts on some of the greats that you bowled against? But Sonil Gavaskar, obviously. Jimmy Amanat, he was a very difficult um, batsman to bowl to. Dilip Vensaka for India. Come across to Australia, people like Alan Border. Dean Jones was, was a particularly good player, fast bowling. Um, I didn't play a lot of cricket against the chapels. They they had all more or less gone out of the game. But borders it was one of the was definitely a difficult batsman to get out. Did you play a lot against Boycott? Did you get a chance in county to bowl against him? I bowled against Jeffrey Boycott. What I would say about Jeffrey Boycott, he Boycott didn't give away his wicket. So there was no terror in bowling against Boycott. You, you can set a feeling if you wanted to contain him, you can contain him. I mean, it, with Boycott, is a war of attrition. Hmm. Uh, I, I never fear bowling against Jeffrey Boycott. You, you know he wasn't going to give you his wicket playing flashy shots. How was, how was bowling to Gavaskar different than Boycott? I know you described it, but for a younger fan, because Gavaskar is also known who prizes wickets for a lot of runs. So if you were to compare the two opening styles. Sunil played more shots. And growing up in India, he was more flamboyant. Uh, you know, Boycott learned his cricket in England, and therefore, therefore his style of batting would was a bit more dour. So, yeah, but I think that that would be the major difference between the two batsmen. Growing up in this sunny weather and those kind of pitches, you know, boy, the main thing would be Gavaskar was a bit more flamboyant than Boycott. Yeah, I'm having fun. This is more like a fan talk. So, did you, and last but not the least, did you ever bowl against the king himself, with Richards? in any county or any domestic matches? Yeah, I I bowled against him a couple of times. Not, not for... Because we happened to play for the same team, the Combined Islands. I think I bowled against Viv a couple of times in a rain-affected match in Antigua, and I got him out. But from my observations watching as a, a as a player Viv Viv presence his presence on the cricket field sometimes made the difference between winning and losing people feared Viv and sometimes the fear may have led to them lowering their performance I don't know if that makes sense but they were intimidated by, you see, the Richard would come out and you can be two for none and that didn't really send him into a defensive mode. He would immediately go on the attack. 
and try and put the opposition on the back foot and oftentimes he succeeded. Absolutely. And uh, to many, he's still the greatest batsman ever, arguably. So any, any Viv Richard story you want to share with? You've shared the dressing room with him. Anything that's not published, anything that's fun, because the listening base here absolutely loves Richards. So anything you want to add on there that, that can add to this podcast? <laughs> well, I'm a fan of Viv as well. Um, the only thing I, I always remember, remember with fun memories is bowling to Viv in the nets. And going past his edge and seeming to gain the upper hand on him bowling in the nets. But you know, Viv would look down at me and he would say, I'm still here. No matter how much time you go past my edge, you haven't got me out, I'm still here. And if you bowl any rubbish, I'm going to put it in. <laughs> and I remember that, uh, you know, as a bowler, that you don't take Viv for granted, even on helpful tracks. If you bowl him a bad ball, he's going to dismiss you. All right, so that was uh, quite a fun talk. We could go forever, but uh, now this, uh, we have to conclude this podcast. Uh, a lot of fans know that you had a life-changing, life-altering uh, accident way back. So if you want to just talk about it, how hard it is mentally. Uh, I'm not qualified to talk about that stuff, but again, it's very sensitive, but uh, your life has changed since that accident. So uh, talk about that, uh, what and how you've dealt with it and how you go forward. Yeah, um, back in 1997, somewhat 23 years ago, I got knocked out of a tree in St. Vincent one Saturday afternoon. And as you said, it changed my life forever. And over the years, there have been many challenges. And we have overcome many of them. I now use an electric wheelchair, which helps me to get around. it's, it's, It's a difficult thing to try and explain. Even though it's hard, it's not impossible. I have excellent care, which is one of the big things that make my life livable. I have great support from families and friends. You know, um, in Eng- I lived in England now since 1998. And the support I get here is second to none. And to be honest, I, I enjoy my life. I enjoy what I can do. The things I can't do, I have learned over the years to accept help. So my carers would help me do the things I can't do. And that has made my life, yeah, livable. I got great support from the Professional Cricketers Association here in India, in England. They have given me great support here. I've had support from other quarters that has helped me to live a relatively 
um, comfortable life. And that's all I have. So I have no other great um, demands on life. Each day I take it easy. I, I just do what I can and try. The, the, the challenge for someone like me and, other, and others is to try and stay healthy because you spend so much time just sitting about in a wheelchair. And that's been my challenge to stay healthy, avoid things like precious souls and all the things that can limit your enjoyment of life. And over the years following doctors' advice and physios and these sort of things, we have managed to stay ahead of the situation. So yeah, it's we I have I have um come to terms with what happened. Um, As most people know, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian and I have have a hope that one day in this life I will walk again. But if that didn't happen in the Bible, in the scriptures, we are promised a new body when we go to heaven. So that's those are things that guide my life. Yeah, but it was a great interview. I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I am sure the listeners here would uh, like those stories about Gavaskar, Kapil and Richards and everyone. Thank you.